This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. You know, tell me your name and kind of the title you like to go by. Sure. Melissa Del Bosque, and I'm a freelance investigative reporter. Melissa Del Bosque is an author who wrote a recent book called Bloodlines, the true story of a drug cartel, the FBI, and the battle for a horse racing dynasty. Melissa spent time in Mexico reporting on how one cartel, run by three brothers, created an unprecedented amount of violence and how they were finally caught in part thanks to two FBI agents. I think the major themes are the drug war in Mexico and how it changed for the worse in 2010 with the Zetas rising up through the ranks and becoming their own cartel. It's also about political corruption, money laundering and horse racing. So tell me about this time period. I'm, I'm used to doing stories that are very, very old, and this is obviously much more modern, much more contemporary. You said, you know, at the beginning of this that we're entering a time in 2010 where this became more violent. Just sort of position us where we are in the world right now. I started covering the U.S.-Mexico border in 1998. That's when I started writing about it. So pre-9-11, it was a very different place. There was a lot more fluidity of people going back and forth. There weren't walls, you know, other than in California. There wasn't as much violence. After 9-11 happened, the sort of militarization of the border started with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security and the doubling up of agents. And then the wall building started. And then 2010 was another significant historical moment for the U.S.-Mexico border because of the drug war, which kicked off in earnest in 2006 under President Felipe Calderon in Mexico, who upon becoming president, he had a contested election and was accused of stealing the election and sort of to exert his might and to show his power, release the military into the streets of Mexico to fight drug cartels, which touched off this countrywide sort of battle between the military and the cartels. And sometimes the the two also work together as one against other factions of drug cartels. So in 2010, we see the rise of the Zetas, who were former special force soldiers who were trained by the Americans to fight narco-trafficking. The thing is, the drug dealers had more money So they were convinced into going to work for the Gulf Cartel, which is the main cartel on the eastern part of Mexico. And they're an organization that have been around since, you know, prohibition, since the uh, 20s, 1920s and 30s. 
started with like bootlegging and rum running into the United States during prohibition and gained their power through selling black market goods, basically, and then got into drugs, drug smuggling. And how many people are we talking about at this point in the Zetas? You know, it was a small group in the beginning of special force soldiers who crossed over to work for the Gulf Cartel. And then as they grew, they grew in size, bringing in other former military. And one of the main characters is Miguel Trevino and his family. The story is about how the Zetas splintered off from the Gulf Cartel to establish their own cartel using this military training and just hyper, hyper violence. The story really focuses on the ascent of Miguel Trevino, who was a young guy from Nuevo Laredo who had family in Texas and had joined the Zetas cartel. So Miguel came up through the ranks based on his sort of hyper-violent, really bloodthirsty reputation that he was known for. Alongside his younger brother, Omar, who was his right-hand man, they were known for kidnapping and killing and doing all sorts of terrible things. And, and the reputation helped him make this really rapid ascent through the ranks of the Zetas to the very top. But is this surprising? I mean, how do two brothers end up this way? Well, they're from a large family that ranges both Nuevo Laredo and Laredo on the Texas side and also Dallas. They've got family members in Dallas. They grew up hunting, you know, around Nuevo Laredo out there in the ranch lands. And before that, they had sort of a history of more petty crimes. One of their older brothers was arrested for drug smuggling in Dallas. So they were working for him, learning how to smuggle up and down the I-35 corridor from Dallas down into Mexico. By all accounts, Miguel was just a very ambitious person. The middle child really wanting to stand out and really wanting to rapidly ascend. He also had a big chip on his shoulder, I think, about being from a poor family. What is your impression of what Miguel and his brother were like? Were they considered charming or? Uh, Not considered charming at all. I mean, the stories that I would hear is Omar, his brother, would stop and eat a hot dog on a corpse, he would sit on the corpse and use it as a, oh as, a ch- as a bench so that he could eat his lunch. They found it amusing to torture people and watch them die. They thought of new ways of making people suffer. So they really seemed to glory in the the bloodshedding and the and the torture and the and the things that they were doing. I still don't understand that mindset. Where does that come from? Miguel started at an early age, like both he and his brother left school and he started just apprenticing with local crime bosses in Nuevo Laredo and really looking up to what he thought were powerful men. And and these were drug smugglers and, you know, crime bosses who were killing people. And I think he understood at an early age that using violence that he could get far. And I think obviously he was desensitized to that kind of violence and didn't have a problem doing it and actually relished it. I always wondered that myself in in writing the book, exactly how do you get to that point where you can do those types of things? And what are your dreams like at night? Do you even have dreams? You've got to be a pretty traumatized and messed up person to do those kinds of things. Do they have families, Omar and Miguel? They both have wives and children. So these parts of their lives are compartmentalized, I guess, as well. I would imagine so. I mean, 
I've tried to understand that sort of mindset. Uh, at one point, I went to the federal prison in Juarez to visit a a guy who was in there. I went with his parents. We were walking around the prison and the prisons in Mexico are real interesting. They're like little towns of their own. You can go in there and they have restaurants and stores. What? Really? Yeah. It's crazy. I was in line to get into the federal prison in Juarez with a cabrito that they were bringing in, which was a live baby goat for a barbecue that some cartel boss had ordered from inside. (laughs) So it's a sort of carnival atmosphere. And the person who ran the prison was called El Sicario, and he was with the Sinaloa cartel. And the butcher of Ojinaga was also in there, who was a notorious crime boss. The family that I was going there with was bringing in animals because they wanted to have an animal menagerie for the kids who were coming to visit their parents in the jail. Oh, gosh. The Sicario wanted this. And the butcher of Ojinaga complained that the children were killing all the animals. <gasps> So it gives you an idea of how this sort of ripples out in a family, right? Is that they could not have a zoo for the kids because the kids would kill everything. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So just the level of like trauma and violence that just permeates through these families and the kind of things that they've seen are just kind of unimaginable, you know. But that really gave me some insight into even if they try to keep it compartmentalized, they can't. Yeah. It all spills out and influences their kids. Yeah, absolutely. Miguel and Omar would have had to have been fearful that I would guess that they would get caught. And then what would happen to their families? I think they're constantly fearful. And I think the whole idea to do the money laundering in in the racehorses in the United States was due to that. They have all this money, but they know it's not going to last. So they've got to get it out of Mexico. They have to get it into real estate or something that's tangible for their families, for their mother who's in Dallas, for the rest of the family, so that they can hold on to that money that they have before they're either killed or captured. This is a naive question, but does their mother know that they're doing this? Oh, yeah, I'm sure she does. It would be impossible not to know. Well, this is a perfect segue into the horse business. Sure. We're talking about 2009, 2010. So as Miguel and Omar making their rise in the Zetas and Miguel will, by 2011, be the leader of the Zetas. They are making millions and millions and millions of dollars from shipments of drugs coming through Nuevo Laredo. They're making something like $30 million just on one deal. Incredible. So they've got so much money, they don't know what to do with it. So they've got a whole army of accountants and lawyers trying to launder this money and track the money and put it back into their operation and then also overseas. So they are already racing horses in Mexico. It's a very status-driven thing. All the cartels have their favorite racehorses. They have racehorse stables. They, They race against each other. And they race for cash, you know, million dollars or whatever. They'll have these clandestine races. I heard stories about how they would go to Durango or somewhere like that and just close down the racetrack for their own personal use. And they would do that in Nuevo Laredo, too, where they would just, Miguel would decide, I want the racetrack. So they'd close it down so he could race his horses against his friends' horses. The quarter horse, and we're talking about quarter horse racing here, which is really a thing in the Southwest and in Mexico and all the way down into Brazil. It's very, very popular. Oklahoma City 
has the Heritage Place auctions that happen. When you go into Heritage Place, you see people there from all over the world. You see a lot of Brazilians. You see people from all over Mexico, people from the U.S., and they're all there to bid on these racehorses. What's really noticeable, too, is that the cartels are there and they really stand out because they have different fashion choices. <laughs> like what? Yeah, like the Sinaloa guys would wear these pointy, pointy boots. The Gulf Cartel guys really like that, like Ed Hardy stuff, you know, they like rhinestones and like oh the tattoo type imagery. One of the insignias for the Zetas was the Ferrari emblem. So you would see guys walking around in Ferrari jackets and they're all on Nextel radio phones talking to their bosses back in Mexico about who they're going to bid on and who does their boss want and it's this whole ecosystem. And there are million dollar races in the U.S. If wow. your horses can win in these million dollar races in the United States, you're going to make a lot of money. But it's not just about the races. The point of the race is to win and then to breed that horse. So the money is really in the breeding. These are legitimate races? Yes, these are legitimate races that we're talking about. So the breeding of a, of a champion horse is, is where the real money is. So if you can win one of these million dollar quarter horse races that happen, then you've got a champion sire that you can breed and advertise. It's like a retirement fund basically for you. I cannot imagine the amount of pressure that these trainers and these jockeys working for these guys must have felt. You must feel like your life is on the line, depending on the on the choices you make. An incredible amount of pressure. And I think it's already so much pressure anyways, even when you're not working for a, a crime <laughs> boss, you know, or a drug cartel. And I think there was a lot of don't ask, don't tell, you know, like, oh, yeah. I know this guy from Mexico has got a ton of money paying for this and that. And I'm just not going to ask too many questions. Mexican race horse owners have kept the American racing industry on life support. You know, they've revitalized it. Without Mexico, the U.S. industry would be dead. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's really dwindling the amount of people that go to, to horse races. The U.S. industry really, really, really counts on the Mexicans and the Brazilians to come to these auctions and to spend money and to keep injecting money into the industry. So Miguel and Omar decide to make a big move, right? How does this all start? Well, they, I mean, they start with a buyer from Monterrey, a guy named Ramiro Villarreal, who is buying horses for them in the United States and bringing them down to Mexico and, and vice versa. But I think Miguel feels that Ramiro knows too much about their business. And, and Miguel's a very paranoid guy, you know? He doesn't <laughs> as want, he should be. <laughs> yeah, as he should be, as any drug cartel boss is. They don't want anybody knowing too much about what they're doing. Yeah. Usually they only trust family. And even then they don't trust their family sometimes that much. So Miguel decides that they need to get rid of Ramiro because I feel like Ramiro's also padding his expenses, you know? So he settles on the idea of getting his brother Jose into the business because Jose is a U.S. citizen. He's a brick mason living outside Dallas. He doesn't have a record and he's a low-key guy with several kids really struggling to make it as a brick mason. 
So he convinces his brother to be the front for their racing company and breeding company. So Jose does it. They start buying expensive horses. They start winning some of these million dollar races. And just like Miguel ascended really quickly in the drug world, Jose just takes off in quarter horse racing and has won like more million dollar purses than anybody in a lifetime of quarter horse racing. Legitimately? Illegitimately. They find out. The FBI comes to discover that a lot of it is through cheating. They are constantly adding new things that they're being tested for, and trainers are constantly finding ways to get around it. So it's like an arms race. I mean, all these horses are being dragged to get that edge to win, and it's win at all costs. It's very, very sad because they really suffer, and a lot of them end up dying after the races. They inject them with all kinds of things. They've injected him with cocaine, frog venom, any kind of thing that will give him a jolt and make him run faster. They'll For do it. For a quarter it. of a mile, essentially. <laughs> right, right. Because the quarter horse racing, it's explosive right. speed that has to happen. Right. It's methamphetamines, right. essentially. Yeah, right out of the gate. It's the differences are in seconds. So there's a lot on the line. Miguel and Jose, they went all in on doing whatever it took to make sure that they won. So Jose is now a star in the world of racing, right, in the United States. States. Oh, yeah. He's come out of nowhere as a brick mason. He was making 50000 a year on a good year with four children. And all of a sudden, he's winning these million-dollar races. He's got all this money. He's going to auctions and spending incredible amounts of money on horses and getting everybody's attention. Like, who is this guy? I want to backtrack because I had forgotten about the man who was about to be murdered because he knew too much. What happened with Ramiro is that he died under mysterious circumstances, in quotes. It was reported as a one-car rollover, and his car was entirely incinerated. It was just a shell, a burnt-out shell when it was found. And this is in Mexico or in the United States? And this is in Mexico. Okay. Of course, no connections were made at that point of who this guy was. I think people in the horse racing drug world knew exactly what had happened, but nobody else did at that point. It was later that the FBI made the connections and other agencies that were working on the case about what had happened to Ramiro. Now they've moved on with Jose. How does this grow? Is this a top 10%? Oh, absolutely. Top 10%. They're showing up to these auctions at Heritage Place and they're running the auction prices through the roof. The normal quarter horse folks who have been around forever cannot afford to bid because if a horse comes that they want, they'll they'll pay over the asking price. They'll pay whatever it takes to get it. So they're just inflating all the prices for horses and they're having a big impact on the racing. So Jose is really attracting atten- the attention of the longtime quarter horse trainers and everyone else in the industry. Like, who is this guy? I, I think people kind of knew what was going on, but they didn't ask questions. No kidding. They did not want to get involved. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, of course. I grew up around horses, specifically around quarter horses. It's such a tight-knit community. Mm -hmm. And to have these new players come on the scene, I'm sure was incredibly intimidating, I would guess, to Americans. Yeah, I think, and Mexicans too, or, you know, anybody legitimate, the Brazilians, anybody legitimately in the business And at the same time, they're injecting this much, much needed money into the industry. 
It's a hard calculus. They're kind of saving the industry by bringing all this money, but then they're also killing the industry as well by driving up these inflated prices and then threatening trainers and making people feel afraid and also cheating and doping the horses and doing everything else. So they're simultaneously invigorating it and killing it at the same time. They are still, I'm assuming, issuing the same intimidation tactics, dead bodies in Mexico. Does that happen? in Laredo or anywhere else in the United States with this particular group? Or do those sort of displays for the public, really, are they centered on Mexico? They're centered on Mexico. I mean, the way that they can do this in Mexico is because the local law enforcement and the military, to some extent, are also corrupted and have made agreements with different factions of the cartels. So there's this total impunity where 98% of murders are not investigated in Mexico. So you can literally get away with murder and other crimes and you just pay off the right person and you're scot-free. So they can get away with these really macabre displays and subjugating whole swaths of territory to their control because the police work for them and to some extent the military as well. Whereas in the U.S. side, they still enforce the laws most of the time. So they could not get away with something in the United States like they could in Mexico, these decapitations, leaving piles of bodies in the middle of a busy highway. Incinerating cars. And incinerating cars. The way that it would happen in the United States is they would kidnap somebody and take them back to Mexico and then they would kill them. Okay. Or they would wait for that person to go to Mexico and then they would get them there. A lot of people disappear (laughs) So you have to assume with these three brothers that at some point somebody is going to catch wind of this with some authority in the United States. When has this become alarming to someone who will actually do something? So we have different federal agencies that have different parts of this case. You have the DEA who has following Ramiro Villarreal. You have, I think, HSI, which is Homeland Security Investigations, has a little bit of it. And then the FBI comes into the picture. They come to the case through Tyler Graham, who is from a fairly wealthy family, longtime quarter horse family. His grandfather, Doc Graham, is part owner of Heritage Place in Oklahoma City. He's a big figure in quarter horse racing and ranching in general. And so Tyler has been anointed in the family to take over in Doc Graham's footsteps. Tyler and Scott Lawson, the agent that I follow, who's a young guy like Tyler, you know, he's 30 years old, big blonde guy in cowboy boots from Tennessee, from the country. So he and Tyler kind of click because they have similar backgrounds. And so he enters the case through Tyler and Tyler becomes his informant. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Thank you. 
there's this horse called Tempting Dash that makes a big splash on the racetrack and wins a lot of money. And this horse becomes Jose's ticket to the top of quarter horse racing. He has a multi-million dollar winning horse that he can now breed and make tons of money off of. And Tyler Graham's business is horse breeding because that's where the money is. So Tyler really, really wants to breed this horse, Tempting Dash. And that's how he gets close to Jose and how they sort of start working together. Everyone says he really had no idea what he was getting into. But before much time had passed, he was in pretty deep. And that's when Scott Lawson approached him and said, you can either go to jail or you can start working for me as an informant. For the FBI. Yeah, for the FBI. And this is a young guy in his late 20s who's now being asked to become an informant against like the most vicious, scariest drug cartel in Mexico. He had to have thought about that for a little bit, I'm assuming. Oh, yes, I'm sure he did. If he went to jail, he probably wouldn't have been safe there either. No, I don't think so. So he agrees to to work with Scott and Alma as, as an informant. And Alma is his Scott's partner, is that right? Yeah, Alma Perez is, is is Scott's partner. And I use a pseudonym for her in the book. That's not her real name because she lives in Laredo still, has a big family and has family members in Mexico as well. So wow. she did not want to use her real name in the book. But yeah, she's a total kick-ass agent. <laughs> and I was really thrilled to have a, a Latina kick-ass agent, you know, as one of the main characters in the book. She must have really trusted you to be able to tell this story. Yeah, no, it can't be easy. I mean, we had a lot of conversations. It took a couple of years. A couple of years? Well, of, of talking and writing. And so I was lucky that they let me spend as much time as I did. And Scott must have had some feeling of intimidation also going into this. Is this a world he had been in before? It wasn't at all, which is why he really needed Alma, because Alma speaks Spanish. She understands border culture. He's a real fish out of water. You know, he's a country boy coming from Tennessee and is just in over his head, basically. So she really helps him out in terms of context and history and figuring out what's going on. So you've got Scott and Alma have teamed up and they have Tyler as an informant at this point. I can't imagine that would have gone over well with other agencies. They didn't know at first about Tyler. They had Ramiro, but then Ramiro got killed. Their case had kind of ground to a halt. And then Scott and Alma wanted to hold on to Tyler and not have the DEA take him away or convince him to come to them. Right. So they came to an agreement where the agencies would be able to work together to not hinder the case. Right. So Tyler continues doing business with Jose and the other two brothers. What was this whole situation like? Well, Miguel and Omar at that point are in Mexico. They're not coming into the United States anymore because there's so much heat on them at that point. You're hearing that there was a sighting of Omar in California or they saw Miguel in Dallas, like the boogeyman, you know, they're like, I saw him. (laughs) So everybody's looking for them. So they're not stepping foot into the United States. So it's just Jose and then various money couriers and trainers and people like that that are working for Miguel and Omar in the United States. So Tyler's working with Jose. 
Did you get the impression that Jose had that same type of bizarre bloodlust that his other two brothers have, or he is a little bit more of the brains in that way of the operation? I don't think he was as sanguinary as they were, probably a little bit more low key, but definitely the chip on the shoulder and the, you know, this is our chance. This is our one chance to grab that dream and to make it and to have something for our family. Is that a sense of entitlement or is it something else? Maybe just a feeling that all the cards are stacked against you, so you're going to do whatever it takes, and just a willing to walk over a pile of dead bodies to get there. Tell me what the exchange of information is like between Jose and Tyler and then Tyler with the two agents, Scott and Alma. What kind of data are they collecting? I mean, Tyler's just going on about his business with Jose and breeding horses, going to the races and just doing as he would do under normal circumstances. But he is collecting information about their operation and about Jose. And he's meeting secretly with Scott in different places. Scott and other agents are keeping eyes on Tyler and on Jose at the racetracks in the United States. They're doing surveillance. But the really hard part is what Steve Pennington and his group are doing with the Treasury Task Force, because what they need to do to prosecute Jose and his brothers is to prove the connection between the drug cartel money and the purchase of all these horses. So is that the money laundering part? The money laundering part. And that's the hard part because they have to have evidence of the entire money trail from Mexico into the United States. So they're requesting bank documents and things from from banks in Mexico, and they're getting nothing well, in return. Yeah. <laughs> they're not getting anything out of Mexico. They know so, what their clients are doing. They're not going to turn over. I mean, gosh. So the hard part then is they have to find these accountants and these money people that work for the brothers and get them to churn evidence. How many deaths do you think have been linked that we know of to these three brothers? Oh, thousands and thousands. So thousands of murders, right? And yet what they can't get them on those. They have to get them on finances. That seems incredible to me, but I know we're talking about kidnapping in the United States and deaths in Mexico, and and that's the issue, right? Right, yeah. The murders are happening in Mexico, so there's really nothing the U.S. authorities can do about that. It's incredible to me. Okay, so Tyler is nervous the whole time. I can't... (laughs) can't imagine he wouldn't be. People that I've talked to that know him say that he aged immeasurably. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a 30-year-old guy who looks 10 years older. Wow. I think it also broke up his family. There was a lot of collateral damage that happened after the fact. But during the investigation, he was just kind of unflappable, which is just amazing to me. What do you think his motivation was? I mean, I, I know, no jail. He didn't want to be in prison. But Was there within Tyler, you think, some sort of internal morality that he felt like, you know, this really is the right thing? Or do you think this was really self-preservation? Well, I think it was a little of both. There must have been a feeling of like, this is an industry that my family has been involved in for generations. And if you guys think you're going to come in here and do this and jack up all the prices and threaten everybody, I mean, there was probably some of that, like, this is our industry and you're not going to run us out of here or make us feel afraid. And then I think it was also self-preservation as well and not wanting to go to jail. And in the end, he did get one of the offspring of Tempting Dash, which did win some million dollar races. So he ended up getting in the end what he wanted. 
Do we know if the Trevinos had him under surveillance? Tyler. There was a time when Jose started distancing himself from Tyler. So it does seem like Jose was getting paranoid and he was sort of walling himself off from Tyler, which was really creating a panic for the agents because Tyler. Tyler was their way into the organization and Jose was sort of starting to drift away from him. How long is this investigation? I've been meaning to ask you that. A couple of years. Wow. Yeah. It took a while. When is enough enough for the FBI? When do they say, Tyler's giving us enough information, and when do Scott and Alma go to the superiors and say, "This is, we're, I think we're ready for this? Well, I think it's coming around the time of when Jose is sort of separating himself from Tyler and getting paranoid about Tyler, and then... Jose is buying his own ranch in Oklahoma and starting his own breeding operation. So he doesn't need Tyler. Yeah, he's amassing all these horses. He's got all this money. He's bought a ranch. He's expanding the ranch. Tell me about the arrests, how that all happened with these three guys. The arrest for Jose was pretty crazy because it was like a convoy of federal agents that started off. They met at the armory in Oklahoma City and they drove from the outskirts of Oklahoma City to, you know, this rural horse ranch where Jose was with his family. And and they also had aerial surveillance. And but it was like an incredible show of force, you know. Yeah. Honestly, it was a little overboard, I think. But they didn't know what they were facing. Bodyguards and all kinds of stuff. I think Jose kept things pretty low key, but he did have guys watching the perimeter and the neighbors would complain that he'd keep these bright lights on all night because <laughs> yeah. he were kind of keeping an eye on the perimeter. So, you know, they didn't know what they were going to find there. And, and Miguel and Omar have such a bloody reputation that they didn't want to take any chances. How did Mexico go? The arrests in Mexico? Well, Miguel and Omar went free for another year or so, so they didn't get caught. Eventually, Miguel was caught on his way back from Laredo, having just seen his wife who just had a baby. And so he was caught on a dirt road on his way back from the border by the military who came over him in a helicopter and sort of parked in front of his vehicle and blocked him off and surrounded him. Wow. Omar was picked up in a wealthy home in one of the richest neighborhoods in Latin America, in Monterrey, Mexico, in northern Mexico. And he was there with his kids and his wife, and he was taken into custody. So they're both still in prison in Mexico. And Jose is in jail in the United States. And I'm assuming that Miguel and Omar in Mexico are in a much better position than Jose is in the United States. Diametrically opposite experiences, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, if you have money and you're in jail in Mexico, you can still run operations. Money talks. You can get all kinds of things. Cabrito. Animals for your children. (laughs) Yeah. Dance parties, whatever you want if you have the money. What happened in Mexico to, to have them arrested? You know, that's a good question. In the book, I go into this history of how the Mexican government has sort of handled drug trafficking in the country. It's this Pax Mafiosi. They have made arrangements and carved up the territories where these cartels can smuggle in their areas as long as they keep the violence under wraps. And the Zetas really accelerated the complete total volatility in Mexico and the violence. And they really created a lot of chaos. And increasingly, I think Miguel and Omar became very isolated from anyone powerful who would want to back them or or help them in politics or in 
the crime world. I think that they allowed them to be caught. They were just too violent in this crime world. Yeah, I feel like they were too chaotic for the system to handle. I think the way it usually happens in Mexico is if you're just too out of control, too violent, too chaotic, eventually you find yourself very isolated and the powers that be allow you to be caught and your number is up. Where they were operating in Nuevo Laredo, when we talk about the victims and survivors, just of the normal people living in this area, what was life like for them with these drug cartels? Is this constantly in fear? Were there rules about what you could or couldn't, places you couldn't go? Just the average person. It's absolutely horrible because your life is governed by the whims of these like hyper-violent, unstable, chaotic, unstable gangsters. Yeah. And the journalists that I knew there, the newspapers were all subjugated and censored and threatened and journalists have been killed and newspaper editors kidnapped and killed. And as a journalist in those areas in Mexico, you're not allowed to print anything without their permission. And they actually have cartel operatives working sometimes in the newsrooms who will let you know what is permitted or not permitted to be printed. So there's almost total censorship and the police work for them. There's no crime solved. There's total impunity. So you're really at the whims of these hyperviolent guys who are completely unpredictable. So it's a total nightmare. Why would you write this book? If that's the case. (laughs) I mean, I'm serious. Why, Why would you put yourself at any kind of risk? Well, I really love Mexico. Covering that region, it was so incredibly heartbreaking for me to see it sort of dissolve into this chaotic violence and to try to understand why that was happening. I know journalists on both sides of the border were trying to figure it out. Like, what? how do we explain what's happening? What is going on here? How do you put it into words, especially when there's no official type of information? Journalists are being censored in Mexico, so it's really hard to get information as to what's happening. No reliable sources, really. No, and everybody's afraid and everybody's threatened and nobody can really say what's happening. At the same time, you're hearing rumors and things about this guy, Miguel. He was like a a monster. Yeah, Yeah. well, it's like you said, it's like the boogeyman. A mythical monster. When Jose was actually brought to court, there was very little information about the Zetas. We just knew them as this sort of monstrous organization that had really changed the game in the drug war for the worse. I mean, it was so bad that I, as a reporter, had to really think twice and take a lot of security precautions to even go into Mexico, which was completely new for me. It was like having a a war correspondent position all of a sudden. When I was a domestic reporter, suddenly I was having to take these like, you know, what happens if I get kidnapped or what happens if there's a gun battle? So it was just this completely crazy upside down world. And so when this case came to court, I thought this is a way to understand how these guys came about, what's going on in Mexico. That was really my motivation for doing it, was to understand this pivotal moment in Mexican and U.S. history. A lot of the cartel leadership was brought in to testify during the trial. If you're ever going to learn anything from this, guys, that was it. That was the only time. So it was a real learning experience and an eye-opener. Did you have some dicey moments when you were in Mexico that you felt like you were feeling threatened? Oh, yeah. I mean, I went to a clandestine race in Durango in the middle of nowhere. 
because I wanted to see what these races were like in Mexico. And then some soldiers showed up with some big guns and it felt pretty dicey. And then someone told me there that there had been gun battles before. And not to worry, you just get down on the ground and bullets won't hit you. (laughs) It's that kind of thing. It's practical (laughs) advice. Where do the Zetas stand now in Mexico? Are they still there? Are they still being run by the Trevinos? They're still there, but they've really splintered off and they're a much smaller faction now. And they're still sort of centered around Nuevo Laredo and, and they're run by relatives of the Trevino family. It's a very prolific family. There's a lot of relatives, a lot of cousins. So they're still involved. I don't know how much Miguel and Omar are involved in all that, but they're probably still involved. They're both still in jail in Mexico. So I'm sure they probably have some hand or say in how all that operates down there. There's just so much money. And until that money goes away or until they crack down on it and force people to stop, they're just not going to. And they're just going to keep fighting it out till the death. And it's just the people in these towns who have nothing to do with any of this who end up suffering. Yeah, it's just a hell for especially people in these small and rural towns, they feel abandoned by the government and subjugated to the whims of these like hyperviolent thugs. And that's all they can do is just try to stay alive. On the next episode of Wicked Words. I think he was dangerous and some girls knew it and they caught on, they smelled it. They weren't given the power to be heard about it. When Gary was mad, it was scary. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.